You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about the people that are making this week's show possible. First up is Howl. And uh, if you are a fan of podcasts, which you probably are since you're listening to this podcast, you are going to love Howl. It's like Netflix, but uh, for podcasts. Here's the deal. they got tons of uh, original shows, shows you can't hear anywhere where else. They've got a new one called The Complete Woman. I just listened to the first episode. It's fantastic. So they got all this original stuff, but also you can go back and listen to the full archive of some of your favorite shows. WTF with Mark Maron, Comedy Bang Bang, How Did This Get Made, tons of great shows, full archive access, all you can listen, just $4.99 a month. And if you go to howl.fm, that's H-O-W-L dot F-M, you can try it all for free for a month. Definitely check that out. You've got uh, nothing to lose and lots to listen to. Our show is also brought to you this week by Mac Weldon. Uh, it's that time of year where people are getting gifts for each other. And uh, maybe you need to get a gift for a guy in your life. And maybe that guy in your life could use some new underwear and socks. I got a guy in my life, Aaron Lammer. You might have heard last week, he needs new underwear and socks. So I'm going to get him one of the holiday packs from Mac Weldon. It's top of the line stuff, the best underwear and socks you could find. Their website's super easy to use. Everything is uh, very simple. It just arrives at the person's house all beautifully wrapped like a gift, like you would want it to be. And in that gift, top of the line underwear and socks. Go to MacWeldon.com, use the uh, offer code LONGFORM at checkout, and you'll get 20% off. 20% off the best socks and underwear you can find. Thanks, Mac Weldon. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts. Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, hey. Max. Hey. Uh, this week on the show, I did the interview, and it was with um, Adrian Chen. Adrian Chen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Two-timer. Yeah, yeah, back, back uh, the first time I talked to him was like episode 13. Yeah. Uh, early days, bad sound days, bad interviewing style days. We, uh, we, you know, <laughs> every time we have an earlier one reference, you don't have to say bad sound. Okay, yeah. fine. It's great sound. It's fantastic yeah. sound. Uh, also in that interview, uh, Adrian was at Gawker at the time and had just written this big piece um, exposing like a troll on Reddit. Yeah. And he'd done the whole thing from his computer. And the, <laughs> the whole interview, I was like, hey, man, you ever like grow up and write a real magazine article where you do some <laughs> reporting? And uh, since then, he has written incredible magazine articles over yeah. and over again. Uh, there are three that are of note. One is uh, he did this piece for Wired about content moderators, like the people who make sure that nothing disgusting and terrible gets on your Facebook feed. Yeah. That was great. We talked about that. He wrote one where he uh, investigated like a troll 
Army in yeah. Russia. Trolls for hire. Yeah, in St. Petersburg. New York Times Magazine. New York yeah. Times Magazine, the troll uh, trolls for hire turned themselves on Adrian yeah. in that story. And then uh, just last month or a couple weeks ago, he uh, came out with this New Yorker story about a woman uh, who was born and raised in the Westboro Baptist Church and uh, slowly over the course of her experience on Twitter came to question the values of her church. Uh, it's one of the best stories of the year. Uh, when we have uh, investigative war reporters on the show, like people talk about the dangers involved, and I can kind of like wrap my head around making that decision. Getting a bunch of internet trolls to go after you—that is so. That's like double terrifying to me. It was double terrifying to me too, and uh, I don't want to like uh, spoil the interview. It does not appear to be that terrifying, Adrian Chet. He's got an he's got a very like iron grip on that. Like I would ra- I would rather take a like a trip through Iraq than piss off 4chan. <laughs> he he feel- gonna remember that. Yeah, he feels differently. Uh, so we talked about all that basically what it's like to come under attack, and and whether you can sort of like survive spending all of your time in the internet's darkest corners. Very cool. Uh, sponsors this week. Yes. Do we have some? We have a couple. Aaron, why don't you tell us about one? Well, of course, it's MailChimp. If your business sends emails, you're probably not going to be sending them through Gmail. They won't let you send that many emails. There's only one place to go for your email newsletter needs, and that place is MailChimp. Over 8 million businesses rely on it. You should, too. Another thing you can rely on if you've got an idea for a website, blog, or online store is Squarespace. It's the easiest way to do that. They've got an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Build your website today, squarespace.com. If you use the code LONGFORM, you'll get 10% off. I was using Squarespace yesterday. Did you build it beautiful? I built it beautiful. They've got nice fonts. Now here's Max with Adrian Chen. Hey, Adrian. Hello. Thank you for coming on the uh, podcast, Adrian. It's good to uh, have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's go back to what we were talking about, which is this story you wrote uh, in the New Yorker about Megan Phelps Roper, who was in the Westboro Baptist Church and is no longer in the Westboro Baptist Church. Give me the chronology. Like, you left Gawker when? I left Gawker in the winter of 2013. And you had this assignment from the New Yorker? I think I got it about a week after. That must have been like made you feel pretty good about. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was like kind of nervous, but then, um, yeah, went in for a meeting, got the assignment, so I was like, "All right, let's do this." And that was a story that you had pitched. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like something you'd been thinking about, and you thought that would be a good New Yorker story. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a weird way that that we got connected. I. Um, she followed me on Twitter, kind of a few months after she left the church. And I followed her back, and one day she tweeted that she was in New York City, and I just DM'd her. Was like, you know, hey, let, let's meet up. You follow me on Twitter. Um, I at the time I was working at Gawker, and I wanted to interview her, uh, and so we met up at the the uh, Met. Oh really? Yeah, and is that was, her choice? Or yours? It was hers because she um, she used to come to New York to protest, and her grandfather, I guess, really loved the Met, and they would always go there. Huh. So I met her and her sister there. And, you know, we just hung out and, you know, I kind of was like, I'd like to interview you for Gawker. They weren't really ready at the time. And yeah. And so when I had a meeting with the New Yorker after I left Gawker, I said, oh, I had met these girls and it seems like a really interesting story. Like that's 2013. Mm -hmm. So 
what happened in the like intervening <laughs> two years before between then and when the story just came out? Uh, a lot of stress. <laughs> <laughs> I got the assignment and and got them on board, and then you know I think it was just a little too early for them to do this. Um, they had done all a few interviews about leaving, but not a kind of very in depth you know. Uh, blow by blow of what happened. Right, and she had sort of come out with like a medium post, right? That was mm-hmm. how she announced it. So she had sort of told her version of the story. Right, and she did a she did like a interview with Jeff Chu, this journalist. Um, but you know, it was it was a pretty quick overview of what happened. Right, and you were sort of saying like, I want to do the New Yorker version of this. Like, I, I want to spend some real time. Yeah, I wanted to just understand exactly how it happened, and and you know, I I think that. Uh, she is very concerned about what she's putting out there because she knows her family's reading everything. And, you know, there were some things that had come out, I think, that she wasn't that happy about. There were, like, small errors or something or how it was framed. And so I think that that experience had then kind of made her gun-shy. And then, you know, a few months later, her grandfather died, and that caused this whole other, you know... um, outpouring of media and I think that that was just a little too much at the time. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of times where people get gun shy it's because they're new to the media mm-hmm. but her gun shyness was actually like she was pretty like media savvy. Oh yeah. <laughs> and she, it was just like you're gonna you're not gonna do this story right. Right. I mean she was like the most media savvy person I've ever wow. talked to because yeah she's been doing uh, you know interviews since being like seven seven years old so she knew exactly what to say and how to say it, and and she was kind of always thinking about how the story was going to turn out. I assume that you're working like tons of angles like this all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're working on a bunch of stories all the time. Maybe not with assignments from the New Yorker, mm-hmm. but how do you stay engaged when someone's like, I don't I don't think I want to do this. Like do you in the do you have like a system, or is it just like whenever she pops in your mind, you're like, hey, what's up? What are you doing? Yeah, it's usually that. It's usually just, you know, if somebody seemed like an interesting person and I had some kind of thing going and it kind of doesn't work out, then every few months I'll just hit them up and, you know, check in. And um, usually it doesn't work out. So right. I, I was, yeah, I wasn't really thinking that it would, but it was also like, oh, you know, I knew it was going to be such a good story. It was also my first New Yorker assignment, so I was just like really bummed when when it seemed like it was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that would be kind of intense to like get your first assignment from the New Yorker and then like not be able to deliver the story. Yeah, yeah. So so it was a lot of stress like for a year, basically just being like, you know, um, really, and even you know, even after she agreed to do it, I was kind of worried because it it was a very sensitive topic for her, you know, and and throughout reporting it, you know, we kept on getting kind of more and more intimate details and and kind of the story got like way more intense than I kind of even expected and so I was kind of worried at any moment it'd be like oh no you know this is too much now it's a moving story it's it's emotional what's the place that it got to for you that you didn't think it was going to go to well when I started it I had read some articles that uh, about her leaving where she had talked about it and it basically was always framed as you know she got on Twitter she um started arguing with this Jewish blogger, David Abbott Ball, and that, you know, he made a, a point that kind of stuck with her. And and from that, you know, it just grew into this, like, doubt, and she had to leave. And so going in, I was just kind of thinking that it would be, like, building up to this kind of, like, revelation, you know, 
um, that would just kind of snap or, or something. Right, like it was it was going to be all theological. Mm-hmm. Like her, like the like the theory of the church would just get broken one day. Right, and that she would just kind of see the light, and that that it would be from like night and day, kind of. But then, you know, going into it, it was just clear that there were so many other things inside and outside the church. The thing I was really wasn't expecting was that she, you know, fell in love with this guy yeah, on Twitter. It's a like the story is kind of a love story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she falls in love with a guy on Twitter, and eventually, like, tries to take a step back from him. But she also has like never been with anyone. Like she's never been in love and is confused about what like those feelings are. It was so beyond any anything that she could possibly consider because all of her thoughts and all of her feelings had to be in complete accordance to the Bible. And, you know, to even consider that was so out of bounds that, you know, it was almost like this involuntary eruption that happened. How much time did you spend with her? Um, I... I hung out with them for like four days in Topeka, but I talked to her on the phone for like hours and hours, probably like, I don't even know how many, like (laughs) at least 40 hours, 50 hours. I think that like when I sat down to read it, I was kind of like, I kind of had like unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt in my head, that Netflix show. (laughs) It's about like a group of women who were like kept captive in a bunker. Mm-hmm. And emerge to the world and are like stuck in 1994 <laughs> and have tremendous trauma. Um, and I think that I, that's kind of what I was expecting was someone who is like pretty cut off. Mm-hmm. And what's so surprising and what makes like the story so compelling is that she wasn't like she was really in this world. She just happened to be relentlessly trolling it all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She was definitely engaged with like everything that was going on, all pop culture, and, and the church is very into, you know, basically it, it seems like almost like hacking culture, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, like you've been covering basically people who like start shit on the internet mm-hmm. for a long time, and that's what she was doing. She was a troll. Yeah. No, definitely. And and I think that's one of the reasons why I was interested in, in talking to her because they were they have done this for so long, uh, basically just trolling everybody and being really successful at it. The difference with this story and so many of the other pieces you've done though, is that it doesn't end ambivalently. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't end that it, like a lot of the stories written are just like and then those trolls kept trolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you know? And then that like terrible person remained a terrible person and like the world went on and people are terrible. And in this one, she breaks out of it. Why? (laughs) Well, first of all, she is just a very intelligent, thoughtful person. And I think I would be surprised if at some point she didn't, even if she never got on Twitter, even if, you know, everything was different, that that her mind wouldn't have changed and kind of realized what was going on. I was talking to somebody about it. And they were saying, oh, you know, like she she had this kind of privileged role where she could basically just sit around and think about all this stuff all day, engage with people on Twitter and and was kind of in this, you know, intellectual mode at all times. And so I think that that was something where she was just more ready to accept this, you know, Um, like her whole job was basically arguing with people on Twitter. And um, that was like the most important thing in the world, you know, for her. Whereas a lot of people, I think, might see Twitter as just kind of uh, auxiliary to what they were doing, you know, but like she really thought that this was like God's purpose and that Twitter was God's tool. And so it was very 
she took it really, really seriously. So I think those those are the kind of internal things that were going on, but then also external to her and is, you know, the changes in the church and right. um, basically women becoming marginalized and she becoming dissatisfied and also seeing that the way that they're approaching the world is kind of being mirrored in how they're approaching other members of the church. What do you think the sort of epilogue of the story is going to be? Like, what, what do you think her relationship will be with her family going forward? They're not allowed to talk to each other. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's like the, the, I don't want to like spoil the story, but it ends with like her and you going back and like she sees her brother mm-hmm. and there's this incredibly cold interaction. But it made me wonder particularly about her mom. Like you have this, there's this moment in the story where you're talking about how she like goes online and her mom still is like speaking to journalists and stuff on behalf of the church. And she goes online and like watches these videos of her mom. Mm-hmm. It, it just made me wonder whether you know whether she'll ever be able to like bridge that gap somehow yeah i mean i think she's definitely optimistic she's a very hopeful person <laughs> i'm just looking for the the i'm just looking for the like bright shiny ending to this story clearly yeah i think um i don't know to me that the most it like it definitely changed how i thought about things but i think it was more um just kind of unsettling my ideas of like being certain about stuff in the world like just really walking through the transformation that happened to her and understanding exactly how she thought before um and then how she thinks now and just being like am i at the before or the after (laughs) right right it's sort of like if you can be that clear and then that clear that you were wrong maybe we're all like kind of wrong Mm -hmm. to me that's the ultimate lesson the powerful lesson of that that is the mind-blowing lesson for me is just like wow like who knows how like fucked up my <laughs> beliefs are you know have you been questioning your beliefs since then uh i think one thing that it kind of got me interested in is like i was uh my mom is jewish but we weren't i wasn't raised religious at all but ha- talking to her about judaism because because she's very interested in it and played a big role in in how she left got me kind of wondering like why do i just like write this off completely huh yeah i also write it off completely yeah. my dad's jewish yeah i were you like bar mitzvahed no no me either i had no it was like we we lit candles at hanukkah that was it have you been like looking at some jewish texts are you thinking about getting back into it i, I could i could see you know <laughs> we'll see um that was the other thing is that religion is so a non-issue in my life and has, I've never thought about it, but but kind of talking to somebody who took it so seriously, it kind of made me rethink, like, why do I just think it's stupid? Did you have to study a lot to do the story? Like, did you have to learn a lot about the Bible? No, not really. Um, <laughs> she's like a, you know, you Bible just took, expert. You just took her word for it. <laughs> yeah, well, she, she would instantly be able to quote every single verse that she was, you know, citing and... You know, I'd have to go look up the verses and things and kind of read what the context is and stuff yeah. because they had their own interpretation. But um, it's actually very hard to understand exactly what the Bible is saying if if you've never read it. Yeah, um, it's like a, there's been a, like an ongoing problem with that. Yeah, the yeah. Misinterpretation. I can see. I was just like, why can't I just understand what they're saying here? <laughs> <laughs> have you talked to her at all since it came out? Yeah. Um, she, she really liked the piece. Um and was ultimately, it seemed like, relieved that I didn't screw it up. I mean, I know she's been in, like, in the media since she was seven, but never like that. I mean, never in that kind of depth. Did she, did she find that experience? I don't know. How did she find it? 
I mean, I know that that she was, uh, she always took issue with how the church was portrayed in kind of this like villainized way, and I think for her the most important thing was just like really accurately portraying their point of view and doing it with like nuance and um, not judging, you know. So I think for her that was like the most important thing is to just get that baseline accurate thing out there maybe. I've seen like that story has been passed around and passed around and passed around. I keep seeing people like especially tweeting about it just saying like you've got to read this one like incredible story, really moving, like really got me, really affecting. I wonder why you think that it has moved people in the way it has. Twitter and social media get like such a bad rep as like um being full of hate and trolls and you know, all this a lot of the stories I've written have probably um uh bolstered that stereotype. And, you know, I think a lot of people have a lot of anxiety and ambivalence about social media even though they love it, right? They're on it all the time and they're kind of thinking of this as like a vice, as something they should be ashamed of or bad is bad. But like this is like a kind of very clear win that happened, right? That that is not something where it's like, oh, did did it cause the Arab Spring or something? Some abstract, you know, thing that you could never measure. It's like, no, like it really did uh, cause her to leave, you know. Um, and and yeah, it's just like a super heartwarming story that. So that's the happy ending. Yeah, the happy ending is that it makes people feel better about all the time they waste on Twitter. I think that that is part of it. Yes, <laughs> it is a very inspiring story. She's like a inspiring person for. You know, you don't see a lot of people who basically like stand up for what they believe in and make a hard decision, right? And that's what she did. You especially don't see people who have done that after so publicly doing the other thing. You know, like that's, I feel like that's the one of the main differences. I mean, one is the incredible extreme that that church goes to, incredible extreme of the things they're willing to say. But the other is just that like, she was out there doing it publicly. Mm-hmm. Like, like people were cognizant of what she was doing, and so to see her kind of move on and transform from that when it was so public to start, I know there's something pretty jarring about that. Oh yeah, I mean, because you can go and watch these YouTube videos, and it's just like, wow, how yeah. is this person? That well, person? that's the thing in the story too, is that like, you know, the story is written really beautifully, and it's written at like a a, a kind of remove like. You didn't ever need to say, like, what she was tweeting was crazy. Because mm-hmm. you could just be like, what she tweeted was this, God hates fags, or, <laughs> or whatever. And it was like, uh, yep, pretty crazy. Yeah. No, and, and I think also people, um, what was touching about it was just, like, everybody knows somebody who, you know, they just wish would see differently, who they might care about or whatever, and they have a disagreement with. And I think that there is, like, a hopeful message here that if, like, this person can come over like anybody is possible uh, to change their mind, you know, no matter how lost they they seem. So, so yeah, that's that's I think the universal like kind of heart tugging message that people people love. Even you, Adrian Chen, even may, even I may embrace your Judaism. <laughs> yeah, I I went I'm I went the opposite direction. <laughs> Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second to tell you a little bit about the folks who are uh, making this show possible today. 
First up is Casper, and Casper is the absolute best way to buy a mattress. That is the deal with Casper. If you are in the market for a mattress, do not go to a mattress store. It's uh, expensive. It's time-consuming. It is a tremendous pain in the ass. Casper has solved this problem for you. They will send a mattress to your house, straight to your house. And it's not just any mattress. It's a top-of-the-line mattress. It's got just the right sink, just the right bounce. They've combined two mattress technologies into one. Uh, it shows up in this box. You kind of like can't believe a mattress is there, but it's there. It pops out. You put it on your bed. You can try it for 100 days. And if you don't like it, you can send it back free of charge. No risk. But you're going to like it because the mattress is great and the price is great. It's 500 bucks for a twin, 950 for a king. That's just uh, fantastic in terms of mattress pricing. You can't do any better. So go to casper.com slash longform. That's casper.com slash longform. You're going to get 50 bucks off. You're going to get yourself a fantastic mattress and you're going to support this show. Today's episode also sponsored by the Creative Pros over at Creative Live. Creative Live helps people unlock their creative potential. Their knowledge bank is a great place to rekindle your artistic spark or dig into new skills like photography, design, crafting, music production, anything that you're interested in, creatively speaking, they're going to help you out with. You can watch classes in their massive online catalog or attend live and learn from, from some of the best, even uh, previous long-form podcast guests. Tim Ferriss is on there, Alex Bloomberg. These folks will show you how to bring your A-game to whatever you're interested in. Go to creativelive.com slash longform, and you'll get 20% off any of Creative Live's classes. Thrill yourself and join this vibrant community of creators today. Thanks to Creative Live for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Adrian. I want to talk about some more stories you've done since the last time we had you on. Sure. You wrote this piece also this year for the New York Times Magazine about this troll farm in Russia. And I don't know that we really have this time to go like into crazy depth about it, but mm-hmm. that was a holy shit story. That I, like, that I could not believe it. Basically, you went to Russia, to St. Petersburg, and camped outside a very large, very efficient troll army does that sound right yes it was, that a, it was an office full of people who were just leaving pro kremlin comments on social net- networks and live also journal facebook creating fake scare like uh mm-hmm. explosion scares in louisiana and fake shootings in atlanta and and then they turned themselves on you right at the end of my trip uh I went into the troll farm and met with a, a guy who was basically running this internet site that was like pro Kremlin internet site. And, you know, when I get back, um, it turns out that he has written this article that accuses me of being like a neo-Nazi s- sympathizer. And it's <laughs> right. really too complicated to go into what it, happened. It's but. kind of hard. Basically, they set you up to look like you were hanging out with like Russia's foremost neo-Nazi. Right. And then wrote a story about how you were a CIA agent from the New York Times. Is that right? Yeah, it was really wild. Yeah, that must have been fucking great. And then you were like trending in Russia as a neo-Nazi spy. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, they made a YouTube video where they included, you know, surveillance photos of me and that got like 50,000 views or something, so. Uh, was that scary? I didn't know that there was this kind of counterintelligence operation going on against me until I got back to the States, so. Uh-huh. I think if it had happened in Russia, I would have been pretty freaked out. But I was, I don't know, I just felt like in Russia, even though I was talking to all these journalists who kept having these crazy stories, like, you got to go to Russia and, like, interview some of these journalists because it's <laughs> just, like, every single person has, like, a way better story than 
90%. Like, maybe Evan Wright was the one guy who could compete with these guys. But it's like, they're just getting beaten up. They're like, it's just wild. Like, every media outlet is being kind of like used by somebody to get at somebody else that's like real informational warfare going on. Yeah, it's totally wild. You did a really good job in that story, too, of like writing it simply enough that like I could actually follow the like completely Byzantine bizarre like Kremlin media mm-hmm. wars in Russia um, that point in the story where you talk about how you were, you were kind of unnerved for a second realizing that they had focused their like troll army attentions on you and then you were like well I was home and I started like following them back and tracking them back and seeing how they were doing all this and it almost starts feeling like it's like a little bit of a game to you but there's a, an element of danger to it which is different than say like war reporting which is physically dangerous mm-hmm. but it is dangerous and we've had a lot of people on the show a lot of war reporters who are like i can't do this forever it's too intense and people uh the risk is too much and i wonder whether continually covering people who attack other people whether you can keep doing that mm-hmm. it's not difficult for me really um you know i yeah and it has happened for since the very beginning at Gawker when they went like 4chan and anonymous went after me and right. hacked Gawker um you know reddit got really mad when i outed that horrible guy and um blocked all gawker stuff and you know it's just kind of that's how people roll you know and and if you're going to write about it that's what happens and so yeah it's not it's not really difficult i you know writing the new yorker story was much more stressful for me just in terms of you know wanting like having to do this new kind of writing than actually like dealing with those people. What was different writing for the New Yorker than say writing for the Times Magazine? Um, it was just the 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 story. Like the the New Yorker story was a straight narrative um, through somebody else's eyes. I'd never done that before. Whereas the the New York Times was kind of narrating my Your reporting, which I, is what I had done a lot. So that was a much different process, and and it was incredibly difficult to like write this really complicated story that happened all in her mind basically yeah. um in in a narrative how'd you figure it out i don't know i just i just wrote basically like three drafts it took all summer um and got closer and closer every time and i think for me what what really nailed it was just kind of understanding like finding these like moments that to hinge different kind of sections on so like i feel like it really clicked when I realized how important she sees uh, Brittany Murphy had died right. and she couldn't bring herself to basically celebrate it on Twitter, which is what she had been doing as saying this was like God's revenge on her. And she had mentioned that a few times and, and I just thought, oh, that's kind of funny. But then like when I really started talking to her about it, I realized like how what like a huge shift that was. And so just like writing that and making that an important point, um, I think was was kind of a matter of finding those yeah moments. I want to go back for a second just to, like, um, troll hunting. Mm-hmm. It would freak me out if, like, a Russian troll army pointed their sights on me. But it's okay if it doesn't freak mm-hmm. you out. If it doesn't freak you out, I'm also interested in, like, where your curiosity in these darkest corners of the Internet comes from. Like, why why do you think that's where you gravitate towards? You know, in the beginning, it was just uh, something that, wasn't being written about in a very intelligent way and there was a lot of interesting stuff going on and you know people were treating it kind of very superficially and even though it got a lot of attention you know like something like 4chan 
it was kind of notorious long before I started writing about it, nobody actually examined it or tried to report on it. And so I always find that very interesting when something gets a lot of attention, but not a lot of like investigation, basically. Yeah, but then you like, <laughs> you've continued to do that. Right. I mean, like, it's not like I guess the Russian troll farm was, was getting a lot of attention, but it's a pretty specific line that you keep mm-hmm. running down, right? I mean, it's like people who are using the internet to start shit, mm-hmm. using the internet also to like ruin people's lives. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I really think it's just like uncovering something that people uh, will find surprising or make people think about something in a different way. And I think that, that one of the most powerful ways to do that is to really like straightforwardly talk about horrible people um, and kind of make people understand where they're coming from. Yeah. I started doing that at Gawker and when I left Gawker, um, one of the things I really wanted to do was like a lot of like on the ground reporting, talking to people instead of behind the the uh, keyboard. And all, all my cranky old manning had an, had an effect on you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, <laughs> I'll show him <laughs> that asshole. Um, but but so you know, I think for me, just the natural thing was to do all the stuff I was doing at Gawker, but like do it, you know, quote unquote, right? Like like go and talk to the people and like. You know, not just write about the Twitter accounts, but actually go to Russia and um, see where they are, you yeah. know, being run. Yeah, that makes and, sense. I, and that actually has, you know, added so much to the stories that, like, for now, it seems like it's still an interesting thing, although I'm hoping to do other stuff. What changes about that story when you're able to go on the ground, actually talk to the people face to face rather than, you know, over email or whatever? When I was in Russia, I hung out with this um, activist who was trying to shut down the troll farm and I didn't really know if she was going to be like that central but you know I hung out with her and she took me to this like other activist party where they were you know hanging out and she was actually part of this big activist community that is kind of like a rare glimpse of like civil society in Russia where they're like trying to fix the sidewalk and stuff but um, that just like really struck with me and so you know I, I included kind of more of her and tried to get at that angle and yeah i think that if you're just looking at it from from the internet you're only going to see the things that get the most attention and you're going to kind of replicate the the dynamics that maybe aren't the real story you know like the story should be showing how these things that you see on the internet get made and and come out and not just kind of reporting on what's going on on the internet it fits with the westboro story it's like it's basically about the real people behind the internet right do you feel like most people that you've encountered in that world like in these stories that their online selves are radically different than their IRL selves I think it just depends on how people are using it like um I think with with uh with somebody like Megan she had a very clear strategy to get more attention and it was a much more performative thing um and I think, but I think mostly people are just, if, if this is just how they're acting and, and that's, that's the story, then they're just the same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I don't think that that people are that much different. It's just about, um, what parts of their personality get attention. And it's this kind of like feedback loop where, you know, if they're after attention, if they're after a response, they're going to kind of amp these things that get the response and that is kind of interacts with the technology and and that's kind of the 
interesting part. Yeah, I mean, also there's this gap, like with the Internet Research Agency in Russia, like most of those people didn't even know why they were doing it or who was paying them. So there's like, I mean, that that's like professionalized trolling, I right. guess. Um, but that was part of what was interesting about that story was like, basically those people had no idea what they were doing. Like they were just working a job. The job just happened to be like leaving 150 comments a day. Right. Yeah, it was totally industrialized. I mean, it was just like, you know, I, it makes me wonder like what else is going on like that because, you know, you read stuff and you don't know that it's like a real person and um, a lot of the things that they were writing were things that real Russians would say, you know, so it's the, and probably some of them also thought that. So it's a very kind of like thin line and actually a very interesting thing happened. I created this list of... um of the Russian trolls when I was researching and I check in it once in a while still. And a lot of them have turned into like conservative accounts, like fake really? conservatives. I don't know what's going on, but like, yeah, they're all like tweeting about Donald Trump and stuff. Like American conservatives. Yeah. Who's paying for that? I don't know. I'm, I, I feel like maybe it's some kind of really opaque strategy of like electing Donald Trump to undermine the U S or something, you know, <laughs> like false flag kind of thing. I, that's how you. That's how I started thinking about all this stuff after being in Russia. How's freelancing treating you? You were uh, on staff at Gawker, and two years you've been uh, on your own. What, what have you? What have you learned in your time? I've felt a lot of benefit and a lot of gratification from doing things outside of journalism, and I feel like if if I had one advice, piece of advice to give younger journalists, it would be just like do anything outside of like writing journalism sometime um, because it just gives you like a very good perspective on you know stories and on how to work and you know I was involved with the the new inquiry um, I'm still a contributing editor there and actually indirectly that is how the Westboro story came about huh. um, I I wrote a essay for them about online friendship and Megan read it because you know she was following me at the time and I tweeted it and that was one of the reasons why she wanted to talk to me is because she liked the essay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've been trying to get involved in other non-journalism things. And, and that's one of the things that I like about freelancing is just you don't have to worry about clearing it with your boss or anything. How do you go from uh, a staff job to starting to write for The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine? <sighs> for The New York Times Magazine, Bill Wasik, uh is my editor there. And he... Um, he wanted me to write for him at Wired like a long time ago, like when I was still at Gawker, but I couldn't because I was at Gawker. And um, you know, he just trusted me, I guess, and and assigned me my first long feature, which was awesome uh, about the content moderation people in the Philippines. And then he ended up at the Times Magazine. So when you left Gawker, did you have? I mean, you you'd already had some of those relationships. Like, did you have some confidence that like? these pieces were going to happen and like you'd be able to like kind of hit the ground running. Yeah, I mean, I had been doing kind of magazine style features at Gawker and got got a lot of attention um and you know, I think a lot of magazine editors were always hitting me up, "Oh, can you freelance? Can you freelance?" and I I couldn't, so even though I wanted to. So I kind of knew that 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 would be out there and it wasn't much different from what I was doing at Gawker because um at the time uh, AJ Delario was the editor and he was very into just like letting people spend a lot of time and, and do whatever they wanted. So right. it was almost like I was just freelancing at Gawker. Uh, but 
getting paid a salary. It was awesome. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, we've had a bunch of people on who've kind of like made, taken that plunge to doing freelance and it's been hard, like, mm. uh, stressful. Oh, like, it was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely the first year was very hard and like, you know, I wrote a couple long stories that got killed. Uh, and that was kind of, what were those on? Um, Can you talk about killed stories? Is that like allowed? I don't know. One was on like the militia movement and just got out of hand. I didn't, I didn't have a good idea, I guess. Um, and another one was like about some weird prank that like some girl pretended to be like Andy Kaufman's daughter at a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I just didn't understand, I think how to report those stories. That was the main problem is that. What were the mistakes you were making? I just think I did not do enough reporting um, for the kind of story I wanted to tell, like kind of like for the Andy Kaufman one, I really wanted to like just explain exactly what happened with it, but I just didn't, I didn't report it out enough. And so I just ended up like writing this kind of rambling thing about like one, one person who I interviewed, you know? So one thing I realized is that you have to just realize what size story you have, you know, (laughs) Um, that was like a really big revelation. And, and also to, if you're doing a really big story, you have to do a lot of reporting, like directly proportional relationship. Yeah. And, and it's just like, yeah, you can't really write a good 10,000 word story unless you do like months and months of reporting, at least in my experience. Who who were the places where those stories got killed? One of the magazines? One was for New York and one was for Matter. I don't think it technically got killed. It just is in a limbo, was in a limbo state. <laughs> I killed it in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in purgatory somewhere, yeah. magazine purgatory. You've put out like legitimately two of the best stories of the year. And from the outside it's like you, you kind of can't do this transition better than you've done it you know so it's interesting to hear you say like oh yeah and along the way like there are two stories I worked pretty hard on that got killed yeah no I think it was just a different way of working and um, I think I was too ambitious at first and one thing I didn't really understand also was just the idea of like putting in work that didn't end up producing something you know right couldn't have been too many things at Gawker that like didn't see the light of day in some form. Right. At Gawker, everything, all the work I did, if I wasted a, uh, an hour on something, it was like, <laughs> why did I fucking spend an hour on this thing? You know, like everything was supposed to be produce- producing something. And that was the biggest change for me was being like, okay, you got to kind of just like put in a lot of work for kind of uncertain returns until it actually happens. Has the financial part of freelancing been tricky? If you're talking about like, how do you make the transition? I feel like one of the big things is like have have a pretty good savings before, you know, I definitely, the first year, especially if I didn't have okay savings from being at Cocker for a while, I would have been in a lot of trouble. And yeah, I mean, even now I, I feel like the the pace of stories that I'm doing is not super sustainable. Just, you know, these two stories, like I said, like took a, most of two years. Um, so... It's a challenge, and I'm trying to figure out how to do that. What are the possible paths? Get paid more for the same stuff, or is it just do more stuff? Well, I'm I'm currently writing on a TV show. Oh, right, yeah. And <laughs> that is actually one of the reasons why I took the job is um, trying to explore kind of different revenue streams, I <laughs> yeah, guess. Diversify. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I'm working on like a documentary miniseries, um, just writing, and, and it's been an interesting experience and you know just a good way to kind of like bolster my finances after like 
you know, having only published like two big stories. How is that writing different than like uh, the writing you've been doing, writing for TV? Well, that are you like in a writer's room? I was for a while, and now it's just I'm kind of working on an episode, but you can't care about what it is in the way same way because it's going to get changed, and it's and you know you're basically a hired hack, you know. Um, and so that's been a big challenge to switch. Um, but part of the reason that I was interested in it is that um, it's kind of exhausting to just keep on writing with your own byline for a long time, you know. And I did a story about this journalism collective in Sweden called Research Group. Yeah. And one of the things that really stuck with me, you know, talking to them, this guy was uh, in journalism and he started this kind of like, just like, I don't know, volunteer collective where they would do these investigations um, and they would just get together on the weekends and like do these crazy investigations into like white supremacists or, you know, racists in Sweden. And he was basically like, you know, journalism in Sweden is totally ruined by personal branding. Um, all people have to do is like get on Twitter and say some funny things. But like we, you know, nobody knows us, nobody trusts us and it only depends on our work, you know. Um, and so that, that kind of like was an inspiring message to me being like, okay, like what can I do to like subvert my own <laughs> personal brand basically? <laughs> um, cause I, I kind of agreed with some of his points. So, uh, it's, it's like an interesting experiment in that way, I guess. Do you think that you, I mean, you, you sort of mentioned earlier that you want to start doing other kinds of stories. Is there, are there places that your curiosity is taking you in that way? I feel like there are a lot of areas like technology where um, it's very important and but also kind of esoteric and, you know, there's a lot of writing about it, but not a lot of like super interesting writing or journalism, I guess, reporting. To me, I feel like something like, you know, climate change or national security, like these are really important fields that if you just started reporting it with an eye to like the best story and not just keeping up with what's going on, you could find some good stuff. There should be a Pulitzer Prize reserved for whoever can make climate change reporting mm -hmm. interesting. It's like my the holy grail, right? It's been, what, like 15 years of <laughs> the world is ending and no one can make anyone care about it. It's the most, yeah, there's, it's the most, there's the most uh, gap between how important it is and how interesting anything it's wild. about it. And like, I can feel myself doing it. Like the times, you know, they've been doing this series on climate change. The last one was the Marshall Islands are disappearing. That was the headline. Like the Marshall <laughs> Islands are disappearing. It's like, eh. like most popular. <laughs> there's one more thing I want to ask you about this, like transition to magazines, which I'm interested in, which is how you make the internet accessible to people who maybe don't totally understand the internet. And I understand that's kind of like maybe a slightly antiquated question. Like my father's not a very technological person, but like he gets around Facebook and stuff. But particularly in the New Yorker, the New Yorker has this history of like way over explaining very basic internet concepts. And like, I remember there's like a Ken Aletta story about um, Business Insider which has like a full column in the magazine explaining what a page view is. <laughs> like a full like seven paragraph description of the page view. And I just wonder how, if that's been a challenge for you at all in telling these stories. Is, and, and I guess it is a challenge. So how do you handle it? Like explaining with simplicity and without derailing the narrative of your story, some sort of basic stuff about how the internet works. 
I don't, it's never been a problem for me. Really? I, I think people generally understand I'm writing, I'm not, I don't write about anything usually except like social media. And I think everybody understands how that works. Like I didn't even, I didn't have to explain anything in, in this Twitter story. You know, I didn't even explain what Twitter it was. Yeah. In the New York Times Magazine story, there's like a section where you're like, this is what a troll is. Oh yeah. No, but also that, I think that was, that was helpful, you know, like in making me think about what, what I was talking about when I said a troll. So so yeah, I don't. I, it hasn't really been a problem, and because I, I feel like people people think of the internet as like this thing that needs to be explained or like complicated. But like what I'm writing about is mainly media. It's like social media, and um, people understand it intuitively now. Adrian, thanks for taking the time, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Molly Bain. Thanks to them. Thanks to Adrian Chen for coming back on the show. Uh, Adrian had an incredible 2015. uh, Some of the best articles of the year. Multiple of the best articles of the year. And I know that because we are currently in the process of uh, doing our annual best of the year list. So I've been looking back to the archives. And for the first time this year, we're also doing a reader's poll. So we need your help. If there's an article or two or three that really stuck to your ribs this year that you could not shake, let us know what they were. The link is in the show notes. Uh, It's super simple. Just uh, paste in a URL, make your vote, and uh, we appreciate it. We also appreciate the support of our sponsors, MailChimp, Casper, Mac Weldon, Squarespace, Creative Live. Go check out creativelive.com slash longform. You'll get 20% off classes. And Howl.fm, the Netflix of podcasts. You can try it for a month for free. Howl.fm. Thanks to all of them for making this show possible. We'll see you next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.